exists in general? Yeah, yeah. Well, something makes us think it does. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I see what you Thank you. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the hand gesture, which clarified it all. Um, okay, so. There's a joke on that. Barman says, We don't serve neutrinos here. A neutrino walks into a bar. Yes, that was the joke when they thought that maybe the neutrinos were going faster than light. But they weren't. It was a measurement error. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a good, well, I don't know. Some people are sad, some people are happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, a friend of mine, a friend of mine was one of the thousands of people who found it. Um, two friends of mine were two of the thousands of people who found it. Okay. Where um, What? Where's the hiding? In the same place they have the olive? It's actually everywhere. So, yeah, in the same place as the olive. All right. This is our um, last class for like 10 days or something, right? Because we don't have class Wednesday and we don't have class next Monday. Um, so, and uh, eventually we're going to have a kind of change of pace to, the, to literature, um, but eventually. Um, okay, did people get a chance to read any of the Aristotle? There wasn't much. But on the other hand, Aristotle is... There are two ways you can read Aristotle. One is you can try to understand every sentence, and then one page will take you several weeks. Um, and the other is just to say, okay, he's writing it down, and I'm taking it up, and I did what I was supposed to do, and it's his fault <laughs> if I don't have a clue. Um, so which did you do? Oh, really? You didn't spend many weeks since yesterday and today in the kind of olive of time? Half and half and half and never got to the end. Yeah. <laughs> Aristotle will do that to you also. Okay. Um, Aristotle is um, incredibly intelligent, but partly what makes um, it hard is that he's the first person formulating all sorts of ideas um, in which he's um, thinking about uh, the relationship between... Um, the sort of arguments that Zeno um, puts forward, which are really, really hard to figure out what's wrong with them, and the Dionysian fact that they obviously are wrong, that is that we do um, perceive motion. There is such a thing as motion, even though it turns out to be really hard. Um, sorry? What's Dionysian? Um, di so remember that um, we talked about Diogenes. Yeah. Oh. Do you want to? Well, I, Diogenes or? Diogenes, Diogenes, yeah. Okay. If you don't, I will. No, I remember it. Okay. Um, the guy in the barrel. Right. The, the ultimate, the cynic. Yeah. To show what, um, that motion was not just an illusion. He walked around there. I proved motion is not an illusion. Yeah. So, there, so basically, there are two things that are very vexing. Um, this is something Hilbert talks about, if you guys have, as I hope you now have finished the Hilbert. Um, is something very vexing is that in the world as we um, perceive it, the world that we live in, the world that we walk around in and do stuff in and go to class in and worry about our grades in um, and all sorts of other things, um, basically that's just a world that we're very familiar with and it seems like it kind of makes sense, um, because if it didn't make sense, we would just be screaming in psychotic terror every second. Um, sorry? Uh, well, you might be, but um, you're, you're so deluded that you don't know it. Um, on the other hand, um, it seems like one of the ways that we deal with the world is by thinking about it. 
um, being in the world, making plans, making decisions, um, waiting for, for a red light to turn green or deciding that it's okay to jaywalk, all of those things require thought. And so we look at the world and we think about it. And what happens um, in certain situations like that which Zeno is, is describing, like that which Galileo um, was describing the, in the um, concentric circle puzzle that I posed for you last time, is that it seems that um, our thought clearly shows that the world that we live in can't exist. Um, our thought clearly shows that there are contradictions in the very structure of the world we live in. Um, so if you're Zeno or Parmenides, what you say, and Parmenides is the greatest of the pre-Socratic philosophers, um, what you say is it's our perception that's wrong. Um, what we perceive can't be true, um, and therefore we have to give up on our perception and see the world that we live in, the everyday we world, world that we live in, as an illusion somehow. And what Diogenes the Cynic basically said is, how can you think that your three-pound brain could possibly understand being? Um, and as far as whether motion is possible, yeah, I'm walking across the room. And um, that completely confutes your attempt to say on purely mental grounds that motion is impossible. Because um, if, if I do something, then that disproves any claim of its impossibility. Um, so that's the argument. One person, Diogenes the Cynic, is saying, look, I'm moving. And the other person, Parmenides, is saying, I don't have to look because you can't be moving. Um, I know for sure that you can't be moving. Um, so there is um, what looks like a contradiction. Now, what Hilbert um, says, remember he, he brings up contemporary or contemporary to him in 1925 um, physics, which is to say he brings up Einsteinian general relativity and he brings up quantum theory. Um, and what he says is if you look at those facts about the physical universe, they're very interestingly similar to issues that have come up in mathematics, um, come up completely separately in mathematics, come up in mathematical attempts to think about puzzles, in this case puzzles of infinitesimals and puzzles of the infinite. And he says where it looked like math was going to go right, but where it turned out to go wrong. And we've actually talked about some of the ways that it's gone wrong, although we haven't um, done it historically or systematically, was the attempt to reduce math to pure logic. That is, what Frege and um, various other people tried to do was come up with a new kind of logic in which all of mathematics would be implied. Um, logic is the law of thought, or logic gives you the laws of thought. and um, what um, Frege and primarily Frege, what some other people tried to do was to show that math was purely abstract and um, purely based on logic, that from logic you could get all of mathematics. Um, and that turned out not to be true. So Hilbert comes up with a different idea, which is that numbers are actually things that um, exist 
but they don't exist as pure logical categories. They exist as things that we meet in the world. Um, we count stuff, we have five fingers, we can write down um, a bunch of um, marks on a sheet of paper, and then we can do stuff with those numbers. And that's fine. Anything we can do with what we can write down, any rules for how to manipulate stuff that we're writing down, that's all that math is. Um, and so we're looking at something empirical rather than something purely ideal. Um, Joy. Okay, well, essentially, this is, um, there are a lot of problems with, with logic, but they essentially go, come down to self-reference. So the idea that we talked about in the Library of Babel, that is a catalog of, of books, or a catalog, a book which is a catalog of all those catalogs that don't contain themselves, um, such a work makes logical sense. It's... Um, an interesting um, title, which is to say that it's we, we, we understand the meaning of that. And it's got a kind of logical meaning, and yet it turns out to be something inconsistent. That is, that you hear something that it looks like you can work with, but you can't because it's inconsistent. Um, the idea, therefore, that you can use a certain style of um, defining entities and of putting them into logical um, relation with each other that's purely um, abstract will lead to inconsistencies or paradoxes like that paradox of the set of all sets that don't contain themselves, which is how it, how it comes out in set theory. So people try to solve those paradoxes, but every attempt to solve it, um, it pops, it's a, it's a whack-a-mole problem. It pops up somewhere else. Yeah? So how does the real paradox Yeah, so, yeah, it has. That was basically solved by Cantor. Um, and that's, um, and Zeno's paradoxes were solved by Cantor also, and that's something that we'll get to. Um, but essentially, um, the idea that there's no next point when you have the points on a line, that you can't talk about one point and then the next point and then the next point, that's something we'll talk about today, um, that you can't talk about points using the language of one and the next and the next and the next, that you can't find the first point on um, an interval between 0 and 1, and then the second point, which is infinitesimally beyond, past the first point, and so on. Um, the idea that if you give up thinking of points as adjacent to each other, which is what the idea of next means, next means adjacent, the next one you come to, the closest one. If you give up the idea of adjacency, then you, don't, then you won't break down um, the idea that there's going to be a clear one-to-one -one correspondence between the points, this isn't the right way to put it, but between the points in the inner circle and the points in the outer circle. But this is something we'll get to. Um, and it's, it's something that, you know, we're halfway there, and soon we'll be three-quarters of the way there.
but after that, all bets are off. It's something we'll get to, um, but let's let's leave it for a bit. Yeah. Are you financious? Um, I don't know actually, because I'm not good enough in math. But I suspect I am. I trust the financiers. Why? Thinking. <laughs> You're just thinking about about finitude. I'm thinking about it, and just that I want to see what Contour right has mm -hmm. to say about Zeno's uh, paradox because he's able to keep the conception of infinity while also solving those problems. Yeah. Um, physicists tend to be finitists. One of the again, just to see what it means and how little you give up by being a finitist, it's worth looking at Aristotle, but also worth looking at Hilbert. So Hilbert, for example, says um, that one of the things that Einstein showed is that the idea that space is finite doesn't mean that there's anything outside of it. Um, so the, the phrase he uses, which is a standard phrase in physics, is finite but unbounded. And what that means, what it means to say that space is finite and un but unbounded, is, oh, I so didn't want to go into this, but I will, um, is to say, no, 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 is to say um, that we don't know from simply thinking what would happen if you went far enough along a straight line. Um, we think we know because we look at straight lines and what we see is that um, they, seem to be the, they seem to act the same way um, no matter how far down we go them. So do people know what Euclid's fifth postulate is? Do you know what a postulate is? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so Euclid has a bunch of postulates, five to be exact, one-to-one -one correspondence with the fingers of one hand. Euclid has a bunch of postulates on which geometry is based. Um, those postulates, sorry? Isn't it like a line is a line sort of business? No, it's like two points occupy the same space. The shortest distance between two points is a line. Um, that's one of his postulates. And there, there, are, um, there are others. And four of them seem self-evident. That is, you look at them and you say, yeah, of course. Um, their self-evidence is important because if you don't start with something that's self-evident, if you don't start with some truths that you hold to be self-evident, um, you'll get nowhere. If it's not self-evident that A equals A, um, there's, there are no arguments you can make for anything. If it's not self-evident that you can't simultaneously um, say that something is true and something is false, you can argue for everything. Because let's say I wanted to prove that Obama was born in the United States, and my argument starts with uh, my belief that something can be true and false at the same time, you could prove to me that he was born in Kenya, and then I could say, but that proves he was born in the United States. Because the fact that he was born in Kenya means that it was false that he was born in the United States. But if true and false things can be true and false at the same time, it's also true that he was born in the United States. And therefore, he was born in the United States. And Kansas can go fly a kite. Um, and so can Arizona. Um, so there are certain things that simply are self-evident. If you don't accept that they're self-evident, you can't get anywhere. So what Euclid does, what mathem mathematicians try to do, um, what logicians try to do, is start with the most absolutely <coughs> basic, self-evident 
um, uh, insights that you can have. Insights that, for example, would be so self-evident, this is to go to talk about something that Descartes is going to talk about, that even in dream logic, they would have to be true. So you know how you can be dreaming, and you can be dreaming that you're at school, so it's obvious that you're on the moon in a hot tub. Um, that kind of obviousness about dreaming, where you wake up and you say, how did that happen? You know, why did I think that made sense when it didn't? Self-evident stuff should be self-evident in dreams also. Um, they should be that self-evident that you couldn't deny them in dreams. Yeah? But isn't there, I, I'm mad at myself because I've been trying for the last two classes to remember his name, but there's a philosopher who says that things are self-evident um, because of the limited, the limited nature of our minds and our understanding that time, space, and, um, and motion exist because that's how our... Yeah, that's Kant. Kant, yeah. okay. Um, well then, doesn't that stand in... Like, contrast, but isn't that perspective? No, but Kant doesn't think, Kant says it looks like time, space, and motion um, are primordial, but there's no reason to think that they are. Yeah. Um, but he still thinks that, that, logic, that laws of logic are true, although there are things that look illogical that, he's, that he will nevertheless, um, things that look like they're contradictions, what he calls antinomies, where he'll nevertheless say both are true. Um, but he he does he argues this through extremely careful um, laying out of a of a logical argument. Um, he's not just saying um, everything can be what it wants. Um, everything nothing is true and all is permitted. Um, so look, I'm not I'm really not saying anything. I'm saying something that you can always deny. There's always the possibility of a radical enough skepticism that you can say I don't believe that one equals one. Um, you can always say that. Um, is it true that you don't believe that one equals one? I don't think so. Um, and um, if you do believe, if you don't believe that one equals one, it doesn't really matter because that means you also believe it. Because if you don't believe that one equals one, then you're saying that something is the is the exact contradiction of itself, and the exact contradiction of your refusal to believe that one equals one is that one equals one. So let's just start with that. Um, but most people do believe one equals one, to, again, to use Hilbert's um, example. Most people really do believe that one equals one. Um, beyond that, we go as far as we can in terms of sheer, absolute, obvious truths, and you can't go beyond that. So those things beyond which you can't go are called postulates or axioms. And beyond that, um, if you deny that, it feels like you can't even know that you're denying something anymore. Because to even know that you're denying something means that you accept the idea that there's such a thing as denial. Okay, does, is this making sense to people? Um, you would cut out the ground from beneath your own feet if you got rid of the self-evident postulates. Because if you got rid of them, you couldn't even say that you'd gotten rid of them. Because that's how because the self evidence is that if you say you got rid of them, you're saying you got rid of them, and if you get rid of them, that self evident truth would no longer be true either. Yeah. That's not quite true. I mean, there was. Yes, it is. The, math <laughs> the mathematician, uh, I forget his name right now, who um, who looked at the opposite, created the opposite of Euclid's postulates, and it like uh, like it was about like the the universe was very similar to these. 
uh, like operated in a manner that was the opposite of Euclid's geometrical like calculus. Okay, we're now now we're uh, I, there are two things you could mean by this, but we're not we're now not talking about Euclid's postulates. We're we're I'm just trying to give a general sense of what a postulate is. Oh, okay. Now Euclid says there's certain postulates about space. Um, some of them are um, implicit, and um, I don't think it's explicit that space is three-dimensional in Euclid, although I don't remember. Um, but it turns out that that doesn't have to be true, um, the three-dimensionality of space. We, it's really hard to picture space as not being three-dimensional, although apparently some mathematicians can. Um, but, um, but I think, although I can't remember for sure now, that Euclid simply assumes that space is three-dimensional. He thinks it's kind of interesting that it is, but I think he assumes that it is. Um, but Euclid has postulates that are really stuff, they're, they're really, really simple, and, and without them you couldn't have geometry is more or less what he's claiming. And those postulates are like a line is the shortest distance between two points. However, the fifth postulate is a troubling one. And the fifth postulate is the one that Einstein showed that in real space was not true. So the fifth postulate, but the fifth postulate has troubled people for centuries. The fifth postulate, the way Euclid put it, is not the simplest way to put it, but it's the way that kind of disguises, or maybe doesn't disguise, maybe underlines what's um, troubling about it, is Euclid said, given a line in a plane, okay, all of this is in a single plane, in a plane, given a line, and a point not on that line. So um, easy enough to picture. Given a line, given some chalk, a, given a line like that, and a point not on that line, anywhere else on the plane as long as it's not on the line. So let's say here. One and only one parallel to the original line can be drawn through that point, namely that. The simplest way of putting that is to say parallel lines are everywhere equidistant. The simplest way of putting that is to say parallel lines are everywhere equidistant. That's another way of doing the fifth postulate, and I think that's the way they tend to do it in um, high school geometry, is to say parallel lines are everywhere equidistant. That means parallel lines will never meet. But not only will they never meet, but they are everywhere equidistant. Parallel lines will never get closer or farther away from each other. So that's the fifth postulate. And that troubled a lot of people because what they said was, sure, I can see. I can draw, draw two points on a plane, and it's obvious that this is shorter than that. There's no question about that. I, I can see it, and it's there. But he's asking me to believe that if I extend those two lines 100 trillion miles that away, and skews number of lines that away. I thought I'd introduce another large number. Skews number of lines that away. He's asking me to believe that they'll still be exactly 
to the most infinitesimal portion of a centimeter, as equidistant as they are in the part that I can see on the piece of paper in front of me. So Euclid is making a claim in the fifth postulate. He's making a claim about things that are infinitely far away, that parallel lines are in exactly the same relationship, infinitely far away, as they are in the part of the plane that we can see in front of us. The way they used to do geometry in Euclid's day was outside they would do it on sand. Inside, they would burn some um, burnable substance, some, some uh, uh, rags or vegetable matter or whatever. They would take ashes and put them on a table, and then they would do their drawing in ashes. So you put some ashes on a table, you flatten it out, um, so that they're just ashes there. You draw, a, you, you stick your finger down and then you draw a line underneath it and then you say, okay, I think only one line can go through that point that's parallel to the original line. And so you're looking at some ashes on a paper and what your finger has done and now you're saying that this is going to be true infinitely far away in both directions too. And how do you know that? Because you just see it. That's what the fifth postulate is saying, is you just see that, that those two lines are going to be in, infinitely far away. Now, generally in math, what we do is we see stuff, but then we prove it. You see something, and it kind of makes sense, but then you say, how do I prove that? How do I prove, for example, to take a simple example, you see that 0 squared is 0, and 1 squared is 1, and 2 squared is 4, and 3 squared is 9, and that somehow the odd numbers add up between perfect squares. So 0 to 1 is 1. 0 squared is 0 and 1 squared is 1. So 1 squared minus 0 squared is 1. 2 squared is 4. So 2 squared minus 1 squared is 3. 3 squared is 9. So 3 squared minus 2 squared is 5. 4 squared is 16. So 4 squared minus 3 squared is 7, and you just see that the odd numbers fit between perfect squares. And that seems kind of cool, but do you know that that's going to be true of 150 squared and 151 squared? Maybe, maybe not. It would be good to prove it, so you prove it. So you prove it, and then it's proved, and then you're confident. But Euclid isn't proving this. He's just saying that's where we get just saying, because Euclid just said it. A lot of people don't know that. But if you go to Urban Dictionary, you won't find it. Oh, well. Um, he's just saying that that's true. And he's hoping you believe it. Now, this is really important that parallel lines are everywhere equidistant. If you know that the sum of angles in a triangle is 180 degrees, you know that because parallel lines are everywhere equidistant. If they weren't, you couldn't prove that the sum of angles in a triangle is 180 degrees. Lots of stuff follows from parallel lines being everywhere equidistant. But Euclid is still saying he knows it because it kind of makes sense. And a lot of people are saying it's actually not self-evident the way the other postulates are. So what do you do when you try to prove something? Well, one way you do it, which is what we did with um, the infinity of prime numbers, is to try to prove that if it weren't true, 
you would get a self-contradiction. So that's called a reductio ad absurdo, ad absurdum. Reductio ad absurdum means reduce to the absurd. And you show that you get an absurd result if you assume the falsity of something. So people spend a lot of time trying to prove that it would be absurd for parallel lines not to be equidistant everywhere. And so there are two ways you can do that. So let's go back to the original formulation. Given a line in a plane, always, given a line and a point not on the line, exactly one parallel line can be drawn through that point. Or we could put it exactly one where we would define parallel as we'll never meet the original line. Either way, we'll never intersect the original line, either to the right or to the left. So if you wanted to try a reductio, prove that not to believe that would lead to absurdity, what would you do? What's the first assumption you would make hoping to come to an absurd conclusion? Does everyone understand how that works? A reductio works. It's what, again, it's what we do with prime numbers. We assume there was a larger, largest prime, and then we saw, but the problem with assuming that there was the largest prime is that we had the absurd result of being able to construct another number that was prime, um, which wasn't the largest prime, but was larger than the largest prime. That's absurd. Therefore, there can't be a largest prime. So given a line and a point not on the line, what would you do to try to prove that it would be absurd for Euclid's fifth possible to be wrong? What crazy thing might you assume? There are finite numbers of points. There are finite, yeah, but we're only, what we're given is a line and a point not on the line. Okay. So, so the question is, what about the line drawn no through it? Space yeah. Space is curved. And, and that way the lines can intersect. I don't know. No line exists that, that would never touch the line. Okay, so, so wait, we have a little debate here. Point, counterpoint. Okay, Angela. I was just going to say, you could also assume you can draw more than one line. Okay, so one possibility is, given the same things, a line and a point not on the line in a plane, more than one line could be drawn through that point. Well, don't you need to prove both? Don't you, or disprove both? Disprove both. Yeah, so let... Cap both ends. Yeah, so, let's, so one thing we will try to do then is to say what happens if we assume that more than one line can be drawn through the point not on the line. Let's see if, if we get to anything absurd if we do that. Carolyn. Yeah, I was just going to say that like, you could just try drawing two slightly different lines going through your point and just you drawing and extending it and eventually receive it would be Yeah, well, maybe. Um, how far would you have to go to see that they met? You might have to go really far away, like infinitely far away, to find that they met. So, because they might be at infinitesimals, this is actually called a pencil, but there might be that here's a line and here's a line, and they go through the point and then they diverge, but the divergence is so infinitesimally um, tiny 
that you wouldn't even see their separation till you went infinitely far away. So that's a possibility. I'm not saying it's so. Actually, I am saying it's so. Um, but that's a possibility, is given a line and a point not on the line, more than one line that will never intersect the original line can be drawn through the point. Or to put it more simply, given a line and point not on the line, more than one parallel can be drawn through that point. Yeah? You could draw a line on a different plane. Yeah, but those are skew lines. Those are not, we, we know that skew lines are possible. You know, these two, this line and this line never intersect, but they're not parallel. Um, we're, so just stay on the plane. So if you stay on the plane, one possibility, Angela's, is a line and a point not on the line, more than one parallel line. The other possibility is Jared's, right? Yeah. A line and a point not on the line, what? There's no line. No line. No line. There's no such thing as a parallel line. Are you kidding? You think if you go infinitely far away, they're still not going to intersect? Um, you know, it's like trying to pull string perfectly straight. You can get it close to straight, you know, if I have a piece of string there or, or a, um, a piece of fishing line and I nail it to the wall there and then I pull it parallel to or almost parallel to the floor there and I pull it as tight as I can, you won't see the curve, you won't see um, the fact that it, it's pulled downwards at its center, but with a microscope you could see it. With sufficiently good instrumentation, you could see it. You couldn't get it perfectly straight. So what makes us think that after an infinite number of times, it's like, just imagine it physically. I'm holding two infinitely long meter sticks. So they're infinite meter sticks. And they're exactly parallel to each other. And I'm imagining that 20 miles away, there isn't enough of a bend that one is heading towards the other, or 100 million miles away. There isn't enough of a bend that one is heading towards each other. You just don't know. Bending the same way, though. Yeah. Um, so we we just don't do it with gravity. We just do it with whatever random um, things cause things to bend, which is space itself. So basically, for quite a while, people tried to show that if you made either of those assumptions, you would find you would get absurd results, and they kept finding out that you wouldn't get absurd results. Finally, someone proved that if these two other kinds of non-Euclidean geometry were false, if you could show that they were false, you would also be able to show that Euclidean geometry was false. That is, someone proved that if you could disprove these two kinds of geometry, you could also disprove Euclidean geometry, and then where would we be? Wait, what two kinds of geometry? The one kind of geometry, which is line and point not on the line, more than one parallel, and the other line and point not on the line, zero parallels. So those are called hyperbolic geometry, that there's more than one line parallel to a given line, is called hyperbolic geometry and that there are zero lines parallel to the original line is called elliptical geometry. And what Einstein showed was that real space, our universe, is elliptical. It's almost Euclidean, but not quite. And in fact, it's elliptical. And 
the result of this, again, in ways that are, um, I can, I, that I only understand metaphorically, but that some of my physicists understand non-metaphorically, um, is that if you go far enough in any direction, you'll get back to where you started. How do you understand that non-metaphorically? Pac-Man. I would tell, no, yeah, that's metaphorically. I would tell you if I knew, but it just basically means you could say that there is no such thing as a perfectly straight line in a naive view of what straightness is. Yeah? Turns out Pac Man is actually a toroidal um, uh -huh. two dimensional space. Yeah. Um, as opposed to a spherical one, which would look sort of differently. Um, but like, you, can, you can sort of prove this to yourself. Wait, can't you go up on top of Pac Man? Yeah, so it's toroidal. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 sorry. Think about the Pac Man square and first fold it and make it into a cylinder because if you go off right. edge. Yeah, and then, and yeah. Right, and you get a torus. Yeah. And then okay. get a Ford Taurus and drive on it. Um, all right, so look, all, so this, the, the take home from this is that according to Einstein, you can go forever, or if you go long enough in a certain direction, you'll get back to where you started. Um, and it's not that you will ever have um, curved where you're going. It's not that you would be subtly turning in space. It's that space itself turns subtly. But what's wrong with the metaphor is that if you think of space turning, you're imagining that it's turning against a background that doesn't turn. That's how we think of turning is you can see that you're turning because there's a background um, that's turning in the other direction. Um, and that's to imagine that space is straight. But if space just isn't straight, if it just isn't, then it's not the case that you're turning uh, with respect to some space. It's that space itself is turning and gets you back to where you started. And it's no big deal. In fact, what are the odds that space would be Euclidean? You know, Euclid, as I say, was just looking at um, some flat surfaces that he put some ashes on. What are the odds that the universe behaved exactly like that? Very, very, very low. It behaved enough like that that it looks flat the same way the Earth looks flat when you walk across a field but only if you look at um, perceivable magnitudes, what we little creatures on the Earth can perceive. But if you use instrumentation and experimentation to go beyond that, it turns out that wasn't quite right about space. That's not quite how space works. So um, does that mean that space is infinite? No, because if you get back to where you started, there's only so, in your Hansel, let's say, there are only so many stones that you can drop in the forest of space on the path that takes you back to where you started. It's not infinite. Even if the stones are the size of electrons, there's a finite number that you can drop until you get back to where you started. Is your hand up? No. Okay. Um, so, again, the simple idea is that if space is essentially circular or elliptical, um, if space itself is, is elliptical, there's nothing outside of it, but you always get back to where you started. 
If you think of there being something outside of it, let's say you think, okay, so space goes like this and eventually turns around and comes around. But what happens if I were to go straight like that instead of curving around? Well, if I went straight like that, I would just curve around like this. Anywhere you go, you curve around to back where you started because there are no straight lines. So it's a little bit hard to think, but there's nothing inconsistent about it, and it gets rid of the idea of infinity. And that's what Hilbert wants to do. Now, what Hilbert what, and what Aristotle want to do is come up with a different idea of infinity, which is the idea of potential rather than actual. That's how Aristotle puts it. So the idea of potential infinity basically means that you don't ever have to worry about running out of stuff. That if you need numbers, there are always numbers. If you need distances, there are always distances. If you need time, there is always time. You never run out of anything that you need. But you shouldn't confuse this with thinking that there is already existing something infinite. So again, the way Hilbert puts it, just his very simple example, is you take numbers, one, two, three, four, dot, 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 and you get to some number 57, and you need to go higher than that. Nothing is simpler. You can always make a higher number by adding one. It's really easy to make higher numbers. Add one to whatever number you have, and then you have a higher number. So there's a recipe for getting higher numbers. This is, if you were Paul Ryan, you would say you're just printing numbers. But you can always print another number. You can always get a higher number. There's no problem getting a higher number. If you need a higher number for whatever reason you might need it, it's always there. You can always, sorry, it's wrong to say it's always there. You can always make it. You can always produce it. You can always construct it. The formula for constructing numbers is very simple. Add one. And then you have that, the previous number plus one. Now, does that mean that you're finding a number that somehow is floating around in where? And mentioning it? Or does it mean you needed a number, so you, can't, you yourself, in your mind, came up with that number? And those are different questions, or those are different ideas. Those are different answers. So what finitists say is that you can construct to your heart's content, but you are constructing. It's not that somewhere in some strange ideal region of reality, all these numbers are just existing, waiting to be mentioned or referred to by human beings, just hanging out. That's not what they're doing. It's just there's no end to whatever number you, want, you need to construct. Go ahead and do it. You can always do it. So it doesn't mean that there's anything claustrophobic about a finite universe the way Aristotle or the way Hilbert are thinking about them. 
because it can be as big as you need it to be. Yeah. Yeah, say more. Um, like if you have a circle, you draw uh, lines around the whole thing so that there's an infinite number of points. Mm -hmm. It's filled up, but then if you draw a bigger circle around it and extend the lines, there's space. Mm -hmm. And then you can fill that if you need to and draw a bigger circle. And yeah. Yeah, and that is essentially what Weierstrass was, was saying. That is the concept of a limit, which is what Hilbert starts out with. Um, mathematicians use the phrase arbitrarily close. And so if you replace the idea of the infinite with the idea of the arbitrary. So arbitrary means you can pick however much you want. Pick whatever you want something to be. Um, pick how much you need, and it's there for you. So you can pick an arbitrarily large number. There's no law that prevents a number from being this large and no larger. Any number you want um, can be arbitrarily large. It's up to you. You can decide, that's as big a number as I want, and then it's arbitrarily large. You can pick um, an arbitrarily small number and say, that's the number I want, and it's arbitrarily tiny. You can get two things to be arbitrarily close to each other, like a polygon that is constructed inside a circle with hundreds of billions or trillions or hundreds of trillions of sides and a polygon constructed outside of the circle with hundreds of millions or billions or hundreds of trillions of sides. And those polygons become arbitrarily close to being the same polygon, as close as you want. You want to get closer? Go ahead. No one will stop you. So if you allow the idea of the arbitrarily close the arbitrarily large, um, that seems to do most of the work. This is what Hilbert and, um, to some extent, Aristotle want to say. That seems to do most of the work that infinity, um, it looks like you need infinity to do. It doesn't do all of the work, but it seems to do most of the work um, that you want infinity to do. So, but... Yeah. Yeah, and again, what Hilbert then talks about is ideas. And remember, he makes a distinction. You may not remember, but Hilbert makes a crucial distinction between ideas and concepts. And what he says is ideas drive human thought. Ideas idealize, you could say. An idea is something that the mind gets a hold of and is inspired by and looks to explore. A concept, on the other hand, is a well-understood, um, well-constructed, carefully thought-through structure. And so, frequently, the way math works, the way logic works, the way philosophy works, the way anything works, is you have an idea and you try to make it into a concept. And Hilbert says it's really important to have the idea of the infinite. That's really inspiring. But it doesn't mean that conceptually we need the infinite. Concepts can be dry as dust. They can be the relics or skeletons of ideas, but they're useful. They're usable. Um, all right, I want us to go back to Anaximander. I don't know if you brought it. But um, remember 
the first sentence in, um, allegedly the first sentence, known to be part of Western philosophy. This is, if you have the Penguin, this is on page 21. Um, this book, which is really a great book, um, the edition that you have and that I'm now holding up, um, Jonathan Barnes, the editor, decided to retranslate all of the words that originally were translated as infinite to illimited or limitless. The Greek word is aperion, which means having no limit. And if you think about it, that's what infinite means. It means has no finish, isn't finished anywhere, doesn't come to an end anywhere. The finite is that which has um, an end point, a last point, where it finishes. The infinite is something that goes that has no last point, that doesn't end or finish anywhere. So unlimited or, or limitless or illimitable, those are conceptually or um, mentally essentially the same thing as infinite, but they don't have quite the inspiring power that a word like infinite has. I actually think it's a loss for this book that he retranslated um, the infinite as the limitless. Um, but it might be technically more correct because it allows for someone like Aristotle um, to agree that there is such a thing as the limitless without his saying quite what we would say if we said there is such a thing as the infinite. Nevertheless, if you're having trouble understanding any passage in this book, um, just reconceptualize limitless as infinite. Um, that's a perfectly standard translation of the word aperion, of the Greek word aperion. So on page um, 21 is Anaximander. Um, here being summarized about something like a thousand years later, maybe not quite a thousand years later, but much, much later, eight or nine hundred years later at any rate, um, by um, Simplicius, who did a commentary on Aristotle. So Simplicius is, I think, a fourth century AD commentator. Anaximander is about five centuries BC. Um, so, you know, to us it all looks, it's all Greek to us, but not to them. So this is a much later commentary on what Anaximander says. But he quotes him, um, and he quotes him from texts that have since been lost. Um, so what he says, this is the paragraph at the bottom of page 21. Of those who hold that the element, and by element here he means that which the universe is made of. Of those who hold that the element is one, moving, and limitless. So there are three attributes to the most basic um, origin of the universe. It is one, that is it's made of one substance only. It is moving, which is something Parmenides is going to deny, and limitless or infinite. Of those who hold that the element is one, moving and limitless, Anaximander, son of Praxiteles, a Milesian who was successor and pupil of Thales, said that the limitless or the infinite is principle and element of the things which exist. 
principle here could also be translated as origin. So, yeah. Um, I like that. Um, I think I think that's really interesting because for me, I find train when I think about it or or reflect on existence in general, I find uh, transcendent qualities in the nature of just existence of itself. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the question for ontology, which is one of the major branches of philosophy, um, the, and maybe the oldest question in philosophy is, why is there something, why is there something? Or why is there something rather than nothing? Um, that question both seems extraordinarily fundamental. We find ourselves in a universe in which we find ourselves in which there are, there is something. So the fundamental question in ontology is, why is there something rather than nothing? But asking it that way also suggests that there should be a reason. There should be an answer to that question. So there are a lot of presuppositions. It's a question that it's very hard not to ask if you're at all philosophically inclined. But it's also a question that um, assumes a causal answer or assumes that there's a reason, if not a cause, that there's something rather than nothing. Um, no one feels happy with the answer, why not? Um, but that might be the answer. Why not? Chaos. Sorry? Chaos. Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, another answer is, well, there actually isn't anything. Um, sorry? Because the moment is constructed that way. Yeah. So let's go on with this then. So he was the first, says Simplicius, to introduce this word principle, that is, or origin. So the infinite, again, to translate into a slightly older translation, the infinite is the origin and element of the things which exist. Everything comes out of the infinite. It is its origin, and Simplicius says he was the first to introduce this word principle or origin. He says that it, this original thing, this infinite, unlimited, original principle of things, is neither water nor any of the other so-called elements. Um, so the four elements um, in classical times are earth, air, water, and fire. But he says, no, it's not that. Um, Thales had said, for example, that everything is water. Heraclitus famously says that everything is fire. Um, but Anaximander is saying, no, it's not, none of those. It is neither water nor any of the other so-called elements, but some different limitless or infinite nature from which all the heavens and the worlds in them come into being. And the things from which existing things come into being are also the things into which they are destroyed in accordance with what must be. So we live in a world in which stuff comes into existence and stops existing, but all of the time it's coming into existence and decaying again into the infinite, into perhaps an abyss of the infinite because it's unlimited, it's limitless. And all finite things come out of this and return to it. And then he actually quotes Anaximander, and here's the quotation, for they 
give justice and reparation to one another for their injustice in accordance with the ordering of time. So that's the first sentence of Western philosophy. They give justice and reparation to one another for their injustice in accordance with the ordering of time. And then Simplicius says, he speaks of them in this way in somewhat poetical words. So he quotes this because he thinks it's um, both kind of great and also kind of um, obscure. Um, but that for him is crucial. They give justice and reparation to one another for their injustice in accordance with the ordering of time. Yeah? Is there um, an alternate translation to this? Like Arrangement of time? No, just for that phrase. Like, is there, like, saying aperon is, is infinite rather than limitless? For this phrase, is there a different translation? Probably. I mean, I know that another translation, instead of saying ordering of time, says arrangement of time. Um, but justice and injustice is the standard okay. translation. Um, reparation. Yeah, reparation is probably a legal term, meaning that, that something unjust is set right. So I don't know if there's a different translation for that, but I don't think, that's, I don't think there's anything controversial about that translation. Um, okay, so first thing, they give justice. What are the they there? It seems to be the things from which existing things come into being and into which they are destroyed. That is, exist, I'm sorry, existing things seem to be, or all things seem to give justice to one another um, for the injustice that they all have in accordance with the ordering of time. So how can we unpack that? Um, and it does feel like it needs unpacking, and it also feels like it's unpackable, and it feels like you would want to because it, it really is beautiful. Um, it really is a beautiful thing. It's definitely, if you want to songify something tonight, that would be it. Um, so I think that the first thing to see is that he's explaining something about the relation of time to justice. Time seems to be what balances against injustice. If you look, what? Um, Martin Luther King said something like, referencing that, that the, was it, the, the long arc of history? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, see, it's, 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 never, it's not always parallel to justice. The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Yeah. Um, sorry? Um, probably. I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, so, therefore, first thing to see then is look at the universe at any moment, and what you'll find is injustice. It's just, that's, that's simply the case. And look at it at any moment, even if everyone is behaving extremely well, even if everyone is behaving perfectly and what you will find is injustice. Now that injustice may be um, kind of, um, relatively speaking, trivial, 
It might be the injustice in an Olympic 400-meter race of having the outside lane rather than the inside lane. Um, you're supposedly running the same distance, but the inside lane is still an advantage. Um, but the only way to have perfect even-handedness in the treatment of all things is for all things to be a single thing. The very fact that you're sitting there and you're sitting there means that you're having different experiences of the world. They may be trivially different, but they're different. Some people get to sit in the center of a circle, and some people sit at its edges. So it's simply the case that not everyone has the same opportunities or experiences or um, offerings of experience or perspectives on the world. It may be no big deal, but that's simply the case. Um, so what do you do about that? How can time help? Well, let's just say that the universe is a car and the middle seat is uncomfortable. So five people sitting in a car and, um, you know, one seat is, is the most comfortable seat and the other four not quite as comfortable. So how do you make things just if that's the case? Easy answer. Alternate. Yeah, you trade places. You trade off. So every time you stop for gas or to go to the bathroom, people switch seats. And then over the course of the entire trip, um, if you do it right, everyone will have had every experience. Or it's like, you know, why does she get to serve in volleyball? Why don't I get to serve? Well, over the course of the game, everyone gets to serve because you're all going around, right? They still do that in volleyball, don't they? I felt like they didn't do that in the Olympics. But at any rate, who, who knows? Who cares? Um, but the idea would be then that... Time allows for fairness. What goes around comes around. What's unfair at time T1 finds reparation at time T2. If you have a system where people are, um, are changing places and doing so systematically, so that everyone gets the same amount of some good, then not at any given moment, but summing up all the moments together, you would get justice. So Anaximander seems to be saying something like this, that any given moment you will find injustice. You will find inequality. You will find hammers and nails. You'll find sparrows and snails at any given moment. And it's just not fair that some are hammers and some are nails. But wait long enough, and the last shall be first. The hammers shall be nails, and the nails shall be hammers. So we observe a universe which is always moving. That much is true. We observe a universe which is always moving. And things are always changing. And we're always at any moment seeing injustice. 
But because the universe is limitless and time is limitless and creation and destruction or what he calls becoming, coming into, into being and, and going out of it, because those things are limitless, over the course of eternity, all things will be treated justly and equally. Yeah. Natural laws or some force? Well, he's, so he's actually, I think, making the argument from the other end. So it's not, he's not interested in natural laws. He's not interested in God. What he's interested in is, and this is something that Parmenides and others are also using, is an idea which is called the principle of sufficient reason. And the essential idea is there has to be a reason for everything. All things require a reason or a principle. Um, all things need to come out of something. But there is no reason that some things would be higher than others or lower than others or farther away from the center than others or closer to the center than others there's no original reason that that would be so. There couldn't be, because that would always require that there was already some kind of difference or distinction in things, which itself would need a reason. Say that again? Well, the idea then... Look, so one thing you have to do reading any philosopher, but what you really need to do reading the pre-Socratics who are, who are very different from us, is to read with um, charity, which is to say not show what's wrong with what they're saying, um, because that's really not hard to do. Um, it's really not hard to do to show what's wrong with what they're saying. Um, but to see why it is that they would say this. Um, what it would mean, how, what, what thoughts could make sense of what they're saying, even if it turns out that what they're saying is wrong. Um, so essentially, if you look just a couple of paragraphs above um, the part that I just read you, and I'm... Um, There's also one other passage that um, we could look at, but I think I think this will be enough for now. Um, just trying to see if there's yeah. There's one there's one moment in Parmenides we can also look at, um, but if you look at um, page twenty one again, this is Aristotle, who is here. Um, talking about Anaximander. Um, so there's an italicized phrase where um, Barnes himself is explaining what Anaximander is saying. At the hub of the celestial wheel is the stationary earth. And now here's Aristotle himself talking about Anaximander's opinions. Some say that the earth rests where it is because of similarity. So among the ancients... Anaximander. So that's your question about the same similarity. So Aristotle, um, again, doesn't tend... The, the thing about Aristotle is basically his works are notes that his students took. 
and so you're actually reading student notes, lots of student notes that were put together, but student notes from 2,400 years ago. Um, and that's often why stuff in Aristotle can seem obscure. Um, but nevertheless, it's not that obscure. There's a reason that um, he was for a while thought to be the greatest philosopher of all time. Um, Who overtook him? Well, the opinions have changed. Um, and Plato is now probably rated somewhat more highly than Aristotle among the ancients. Sorry? Platonic form, yeah. Aristotle was Plato's student um, and disagreed with him about many, many things. It's just an opinion. Yes, you're right. I said, never mind. I deserve that. Okay, so some say that the earth rests where it is because of similarity. So among the ancients, Anaximander. And then Aristotle explains, for there is no reason why what is situated in the middle and is similarly related to the edges should move upwards rather than downwards or sideways. But it cannot move in opposite directions at the same time, so it necessarily rests where it is. So the idea then is, and remember Anaximander thinks that it's just hanging in the heavens or hanging in space. Um, the idea is, what's crucial here is there is no reason. That phrase. There is no reason. If... Why not? It's not good enough. Eh, well, um, why not? Yeah, it's not quite good enough no, because... Not. Yeah, there, there is no reason. Um, and because there's no reason, it just, it just is where it is. The modern version of this is what's, what's called, sometimes called Buridan's ass which is um, a parable. Do you know what it is? It's a parable about an ass that's hungry and it's put exactly between two bales of hay. Um, and because it's exactly between them, it has no reason to go to the one on the left or to the one on the right. Um, nothing pushes it either way, so it dies of hunger. Um, and if you balanced it perfectly, so there was no incentive that made one direction better than the other, how could the how could it know which way to move? What would drive it? Well, okay, maybe that too. Sorry. Yeah, but how does it arbitrarily pick? It has to decide which one to arbitrarily pick. Are we assuming? Well, it will go for the one on the right if it's if it's. There actually right does right <laughs> no. There actually do seem to be um, um, neurological um, factors that will will help you make decisions of that sort. That is, we are biased, and it's thought that one reason we're biased to go either left or right is so that we don't get hung up on um, impossible decisions. Um, so it doesn't seem like it would happen often, but it could happen. So, but that's what Anaximander is saying about the universe itself. That is, there's no reason that it would go up or down or to the left or to the right, and because there's no reason, nothing that's pushing it um, one way or the other, um, it's just there in the middle. Now, what um, Parmenides, a fragment from Parmenides, um, look at page 85. So just to tell you, Parmenides... Um, to repeat, Parmenides really is um, the greatest of the pre-Socratics and um, a person that later philosophers were obsessed with. It's, um, 
what does it mean to say this? What it means to say this is that um, the reason Western philosophy is traditionally traced back to Socrates and to Plato. Do people know about this? So Socrates was Plato's teacher. And um, Socrates didn't write. Socrates believed the way you did philosophy was talking. Um, because philosophy was always something that happened between people who were um, trying to understand things together. So Socrates never wrote anything down. In fact, he was against writing, which he thought um, basically um, turned things dead, um, became the opposite of thinking. So Socrates didn't write stuff down. He walked around Athens. He ran into people. He would ask them what was going on. They would say things, and he would look at them cockeyed and say, that doesn't quite make sense what you're saying. Um, and he would ask some questions, and he would have conversations with them. And essentially, he kept saying, you know, you think you understand, but when I talk to you, I don't understand what you're saying. Um, so the Socratic method is always to ask, ask questions about, can that really be true? That's what a Socratic question always looks like. So Socrates had a bunch of students, though, who followed him around when they saw how smart he was, and they took down stuff that he said. The greatest of these students, though not the only one, but the greatest of them was Plato. So Plato who I believe was about 50 years younger than Socrates, um, took down what Socrates said and published, the, published these conversations. Um, what publication means 400 BC is something different from now. But nevertheless, he would, he would do transcripts of them. Um, and Socrates uh, got to be very well known through Plato. And Plato also discovered that he had a really amazing thing in being Socrates's official um, or semi-official um, publisher when Socrates didn't write. So as Plato grew older, he, he started disagreeing with the real Socrates about a number of things. But he did something which is very tempting to do. It's kind of what Woody Allen does in Annie Hall when Woody Allen says what Marshall McLuhan thinks. Do people know that scene? at the New Yorker Theater, where I used to spend my youth. Um, so Woody Allen is, and, and um, Diane Keaton are standing in line, and Woody Allen, being a guy, is explaining to Diane Keaton what, what the great Canadian media critic Marshall McLuhan thinks about things. Um, McLuhan is most famous for saying the medium is the message. Um, and um, he's sure that he's right, and then a guy starts arguing with him online. And Woody Allen says, what do you know? The guy says, well, I am Marshall McLuhan. Um, and it is. Um, so suddenly Woody Allen doesn't turn out to be the best authority in that line for what Marshall McLuhan thinks, um, because Marshall McLuhan is the best authority. Um, Socrates, however, had been executed by the Athenians. And Plato was still publishing dialogues. And as he started thinking different things from Socrates, he started having Socrates say different things from what he'd said in real life. Um, so he started publishing dialogues in which Socrates started saying things that Plato believed. And um, some of those are really interesting. And then Aristotle came along, um, Soc um, Plato's student, and said that Plato was wrong about a whole bunch of things, too. And um, the point, though, is that philosophers still argue about whether Socrates was right about things. 
and about whether Plato was right about things and whether Aristotle was right about things. These are still live philosophical arguments. Um, so Socrates and Plato are regarded, Alfred North Whitehead famously called all of Western philosophy a footnote to Plato. Um, they're still regarded as the originators of philosophy as it's still done. Would you agree with that, that Jennifer? Yeah. Um, Parmenides isn't. People don't say, oh, I read Parmenides and now I see that this is really the issue. Nevertheless, Parmenides of the pre-Socratic philosophers, that is the forerunners of the tradition of philosophy that we still work in, Parmenides is the one who still has most force for people. To, yeah. Yeah. But when you read all this, you know, you read Kant and you read like Hume, you read any any sort of modern, early modern, and then you read Aristotle and Plato, like, okay, well, that's already there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't, I don't think you should be able to get much further, but, but you can, and then you just realize that it was all sort of done before. <laughs> yeah. But the thing, what the, the place that par, the role that Parmenides now plays, I think we have like three minutes. Yeah. The role Parmenides now plays is he makes it harder to simply stop with Socrates. And one of Plato's last dialogues was a debate between Parmenides and Socrates. And guess who wins? Parmenides. He totally destroys Socrates in their argument, which is really interesting. So Parmenides here, page 85. Parmenides is also incredibly important to Martin Heidegger in the 20th century. Um, page 85, Parmenides writes, it is indifferent to me whence I begin, for there again shall I return. That's a version, I think, of Anaximander, of the idea that all things will become just according to the ordering of time. That is that everything will eventually be in all places so that all things will be even-handed. And then also this odd little phrase, equal from the middle. And again, that's a suggestion that makes sense in the context in, that Anaximander gives us, that things there's no reason for a bias to the left or to the right or up or down so that things are circular, which is the least, or spherical, the least biased um, shape, because no one gets a corner office. It's Camelot. It's the round table. It's the fairest and most just and most equal thing, and in the middle of things. So Parmenides and Anaximander, using the principle of sufficient reason, said that the universe was round and, in, and centered in the middle. Um, that is something that they came up with in thinking that everything needed a cause. Um, Parmenides went farther and said, there's no motion. Anaximander thought there was motion, but Zeno was defending Parmenides when he thought he showed motion was impossible. Because Parmenides thought if there was motion, then things wouldn't stay the way they were but they should stay the way they are because there's no reason for them not to. So Parmenides is what's called a monist, and he's the most radical monist who ever lived. No motion, everything is always the same. There's no motion, there's no difference, there's no boundaries to anything, um, there's, there's no um, separation between things. Of course, we all think that there is, 
but that's because we live in a world of illusion, and it doesn't matter because this illusion doesn't even exist, nor do we. So that's essentially Parmenides' view. Yeah. Out of people who believe that uh, we live in an illusion, why can't they just sort of accept that and say, okay, I'm in an illusion, so let's learn about the solution and find He out does. Parmenides, the, Parmenides' poem, po philosophical poem is divided into two parts, the way of truth, in which he says, essentially, there's only one thing which is always and everywhere the same, and the way of illusion, which I'm now going to explain to you where lightning comes from in this illusory world. This is the matrix. Parmenides is basically saying, we live in the matrix, but the matrix, there's no Zion. There's no actual computer that all of this is, this virtual reality is occurring in. Um, it's virtual reality occurring within virtual reality. We're going to be reading some science fiction about virtual reality and um, where some of this stuff will be an issue. Okay, we didn't get to the Aristotle, but um, consider hard what Aristotle says about time and the human soul. And see you in a week. <laughs>